G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. Till you settle the big questions in your life, is this the revelation of God? Is this the word of God? Until you settle in your mind, whether it is or it is not, you'll fluctuate back and forth and you will be the God of God. You will determine morality. You will determine on the basis of your feelings what should be right, what should be wrong. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello, my name is Bill. Welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. Well, we've come to the end of this series, looking at the books in the Bible that have only four chapters. In today's episode, Pastor Jeff finishes the message from 2 Timothy. Make sure to listen to all the episodes in this series, For God So Loved. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you listen to podcasts. Turn to 2 Timothy now as Pastor Jeff wraps up this message. And just a warning, he covers some heavy topics in this episode. This is where our ideology has gotten us, the devaluing of human life. Job 31, did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? Psalm 22, from birth I was cast on you from my mother's womb, you have been my God. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. And why is it that when a man murders a pregnant woman, he is charged not with one, but with two homicides? Planned Parenthood will tell you that only 9% of abortions occur after week 13. Only 9%. 9 9% of 73 million is 6,570,000. In 2020 alone, we slaughtered 1 million babies in the womb. 90,000 of those were past week 13. That's 250 every single day. But nobody will tell you that's what the debate is about. When you devalue the sacredness of life, a woman gains the right to take the life of her child. What they don't tell you is that abortion traumatizes the mother. Nobody will tell her that. No one seems to want to tell her. Presently, the debate has become so polarized and politicized that stats and studies are being manipulated to fit everybody's narrative. But one thing is for certain, abortion is traumatizing for the mother, And obviously for the child, it's not good for either one. But the myths continue to grow. Secular society lives in a myth. They left the word of God a long time ago. And so when you're watching something, you think, how could you possibly believe that? Because that's the natural progression. Move away from the word. Surround yourself with people who agree with you. Believe in myth and legend. 
And now we have become to believe that sex is no longer sacred, that biology, I thought we were supposed to follow the science. Now we're told that biology is irrelevant. And our children are coming home asking their parents, why did the teacher tell me I could be a girl when I'm a guy? Young girls are kissing on the playground to see if perhaps they might be lesbians. No one seems to care that 82% of the transgender community seriously contemplates suicide. 82%. But we keep looking for teachers who will agree with us and we gravitate toward them and we heap up around ourselves. Now, I said my piece there. But my concern is not so much for the secular world. They're not the only one who embraces myths that coincide to a pre-commitment to a certain worldview. The church has been fighting off temptation to do this since its inception. So let's talk about us. The Ephesian Christians in the early days wanted their cake and to eat it too. They said, we like the message of the gospel, but we have a pre-commitment to the flesh. We like Jesus, but we want him on our terms. We need something more mystical, more experiential, more fleshly. One of the most remarkable temples is we're going to learn next week as we start a new series on the seven churches of Revelation. One of the most remarkable temples ever built was dedicated to Artemis in Ephesus. And you have these worship ceremonies. There'd be religious hysteria, formulaic magic, incantations, sorcery, astrology, and sexual acts. Ultimate superstitions of myths and mythology. They would say, the early Christians who are just coming to faith, we want mercy, grace, and forgiveness through the cross. But we also want to engage God through the middle ground of sexual hysteria. Now, there's a lot to be said here, but in the day when the Christ followers were just coming on the scene, it was said in order to reach God, and this was dominating the Roman Empire, in order to reach God, you participated in as many sexual acts as possible. Because during the sexual act, there is a hysteria, there's a feeling, and when you get that feeling, that's when you're closest to knowing God. You think men might have come up with that doctrine? I'm thinking so. Well, aren't you? So you got these temples, Artemis, Diana, you got all over the Roman Empire where people just go in and have these orgies and say, well, we're just getting close to God. <laughs> Paul comes along and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? This is not the way the word of God teaches you to live, no matter how you feel. So I started wondering, what, are you, what do you and I refuse to give up? What part of our culture says we want Jesus on our own terms. Yes, Jesus, we want you, but we want this too. And you know what it is? It hasn't changed, sex. It's still the same thing. So I have Christ followers living together before they're married. Genesis 2, 42 says, this explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Marriage assumes you leave your parents. So when you get married, you're not living together. You're with your parents or in your own house. Then when you're married, when you make an emotional, psychological, economic commitment, that's when you start to live together. You think by saying to me, well, Pastor Jeff, we live together and in God's eyes, we're married. No, you're not. Prove it. Okay. John 4, Jesus meets a woman. He tells her about her life. The woman replied, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, right, you are when you said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands and the man you're living with now is not your husband. Just because you're living together doesn't mean you're married. And Jesus said, this you said truthfully. 
But if you want to find teachers to tell you what you want to hear, they're out there. They are. Whatever position you want to hold, if you go online, I'm amazed. You type in, you Google somebody, preacher who believes living together is okay. You'll come up with all kinds of teachers and you'll heap them around you because that's what you want. Don't you think, folks, that it's time that we're just honest with people and we tell them, it's not easy following Jesus. Don't you think we should tell them that? It's hard. In Jesus' day, each rabbi would have a certain way of applying the Torah to life. And there would be a considerable agreement on what the text meant, but the application might vary from rabbi to rabbi. So one rabbi might say, to keep the Sabbath means to do this, this, and that. And another rabbi may, may come along and say, well, I see your point there, but it also means this, this, and that. So each rabbi would have his own particular set of rules and regulations that were to be lived out if the Torah was to be upheld in one's life. So that set of particular rules and regulations were called his yoke, not yoke, the middle of an egg, yoke, Y-O-K-E, precepts and applications that work together, okay? It was kind of this, uh, well, you know, if you're, having, if you're uh, uh, driving oxen, you've got this wooden harness that allows the two animals to work together. So Jesus said, when you follow the rabbi, or sorry, the rabbi said, when you follow your rabbi, when you walk in the dust of your rabbi, you take that rabbi's yoke, principle and application working together into your life. And then the ultimate rabbi came along, Jesus. And do you know what he said? Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's he saying? My yoke is a lot easier than the yokes you're gonna find. Ream after ream after ream of legality, precepts, explanations of the precepts. But I want you to notice something, folks. It's still a yoke. There's still a yoke. Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back to spit for the kingdom of God. You come into the kingdom, then it gets hard, and you leave? No. Then he said to them all, Luke 9, 23, if anyone wants to become my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, follow me. That means you're gonna have crosses every day of your life to bear. And my favorite one, Luke 14, large crowds were traveling with Jesus, turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. The original language is not hate like you and I know it. It's to have a lesser love, okay? In other words, your greatest love is Jesus. By comparison with the love you have for Jesus and your own life and your brothers and your mothers and your sisters, and think about it, he's talking to a culture where for many of them to leave the family and follow Jesus would have cost them their lives. And still today in the Muslim world, right? So this passage may not mean as much to you as it would a lot of cultures on planet earth, but Jesus said, this is what it will cost you. It may cost you everything. And then he says, how many of you would build a tower, but you wouldn't count the cost? How many of you will go to war, but you wouldn't count the cost? And then in verse 33, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. The problem folks is not out there. Problems in here. There is no longer any real distinction between the church and the world. So why would the world want to come in? Uh, come on, you know, it's true. I had a conversation. This kind of got some of my thoughts, uh, sparked some of the thoughts I've had. I had a conversation with a friend who's walked away from Jesus. I mean, he was a Christian for 30 years. 
So we, had a, we met for coffee. I said, come on, I, I need to know your story. What's going on? Well, he says, I'll tell you what's going on. I walked away from Jesus because there's no distinction between Christ's followers and my secular friends. There's no, there's no difference. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the Christ follower chooses his own truth, does he not? So does the secular world. I will obey with what I agree with and discard what I don't like. That's what they do. I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, what what about like bring the tithe into the storehouse or don't forsake the house of the Lord or bear one another's burdens or pray for your enemies? My Christian friends don't do that. There's no distinction. I said, well, you know, nobody's perfect. He said, I'm not looking for perfection. I just want to see somebody who's just trying. I thought, man, I've said that before. (laughs) He said, the Christ follower is governed just as much by the flesh as the secular person. I put those in my words, but that's basically what he said. If the Christ follower is forced to choose between spiritual discipline and a fleshly fulfillment, most Christians will satisfy their flesh and then ask for forgiveness. The only difference between Christian and non-Christian is a non-Christian doesn't ask for forgiveness. All my Christian friends sleep together. That hurt me. I mean, that, am I really out, is that the way it really is? Am I that out of touch with culture? And he said, and what about this unequally yoked thing? My mom claimed to be a Christian all of her life. She met a man in her older age. He was not a believer. She dated and married him, threw everything out. So all Christ followers throw it out if it's inconvenient, pastor. My experience is that Christians follow Jesus on their own terms. Culture dictates what they believe, not the word. I kept thinking in my mind, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, The way is narrow. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. When I look at a text like this, and there's so, I wish we could spend time on almost every word, but quickly, I learned three things. Number one, here is the disintegration. This is how it starts and where it leads quickly. Number one, you excuse yourself from the truth. You move away from the word. It's in the middle voice. But there's also a secondary meaning to this word. It's beautiful. When it talks about moving away in the middle voice, when it talks about you separating yourself away from solid teaching, inherent in the word is the idea of subjectivity, of feeling, which means your feelings take the place of God. So you start saying things like this. Well, I just believe God should be a God who? Now, whatever you say after that, can I just be honest with you? I don't care. And neither does God. It doesn't matter what you feel God should be like. That question is, what does the word of God say God is like? And are you willing to line in, line up, and follow? I just believe that I should be able to jump off the Empire State Building and not splat when I hit the ground. Feelings don't much matter. The law of gravity is real. Let me tell you something. The law of gravity pales in comparison to the law of God. It is strong and unchanging. Until you settle the big questions in your life, is this the revelation of God? Is this the word of God? Until you settle in your mind, whether it is or it is not, you'll fluctuate back and forth and you will be the God of God. You will determine morality. You will determine on the basis of your feelings what should be right and what should be wrong. So most people, when I ask them, is the word of God the word of God? They will say, yes, it is. But their actions tell me that it is when they agree with it. Do you believe in heaven? Yes. Hell? No. Do you believe in monogamy? Yes. Sex only when you're married? No. The real question of authenticity, what do you do when the word contradicts you? Because if God is really God, he's going to contradict you at some point. 
What do you do when the word contradicts culture? What do you do when the word is inconvenient? What do you do when the word of God says no, when your flesh disagrees? And then how do you respond when one of your Christian brothers or sisters comes along and says, stop this. I said, knock it off. Come on, you can do this. How would you respond if a friend of yours came and said, hey man, I notice you're spending more and more time at your beach house on the weekends, very little time in the house of the Lord. Hey man, I noticed you're not part of a group of believers who hold each other accountable. That's not safe. Hey man, I noticed you're spending more and more time on social media. Be careful. All these are signs that you're moving farther and farther away. And then the second thing that you do quickly, I'm almost done, you exalt your own desires. This is the active voice. In other words, you do whatever feels good over what is truly good. And you find teachers who will support your position. You will heap episoresusin. You will gather together, gather around you, people who will give you a license according to your idios epithumios, your own desires and lust. And you will look for teachers. Folks, can you admit something with me? Almost finished. Can you admit something to me? There is nothing left in American culture so vile and vulgar for which you cannot fly in a professor from somewhere to justify it. That's true. Can I just give you a caution before I finish this? Look, you, folks, you know what you read and what you listen to and what you watch. And you know me, I'm not one of these teetotalers. You shouldn't have a television. I have a television. You shouldn't listen to this. Why? Why? No. But listen, if you don't manage your time in these things, do you realize why you're watching and listening and reading? You can't help it. Nobody's that strong. It will impact the way you're thinking. And don't you understand that, look, I don't want to be one of those crazy wackos, but I want to tell you at the same time, do you not understand how Hollywood has a direct agenda to do away with the morality of the Christ follower, the Judeo-Christian values upon which our country was founded? I mean, surely you see that. So you start sneaking in people and places and ideas over time. Go back and watch television in the 60s. You'll laugh. <laughs> if you would have shown something in the 60s or 70s that you see now, my goodness, you would have had parents and the whole community in uproar. But over time, you get desensitized, which means that if you're watching TV all the time, then culture is getting into you. And you don't even realize it so that your thoughts change. I think Paul saw this coming in Romans 12 when he wrote, do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve of what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The more and more I talk to Christians, the more I'm starting to believe that most people get their doctrine from television and media instead of the Bible. If you ever have a if you ever have an issue that's really disturbing, if you have something you're not sure what to believe, don't go to the internet and research theologians. Just sit down with the Bible Amen. and pray. Sit down with the Bible, read and read and read and pray and ask God to give you wisdom. Now I gotta finish. You embrace myths. That's the digression. By the way, this word has a medical connotation to it. It's like a dislocated arm or leg or you're unable to function as you're designed to function. So here's how I want to finish this. If you're a visitor here and you're thinking, man, I haven't been to church in a while. I forgot how black and white these people are, dogmatic. These are crazy people. Listen to me. Listen, this is about as aggressive as I've gotten in a long time. Wouldn't you say? Listen, 
God's law is not arbitrarily given to you. He doesn't give it so he can be the big, bad, cosmic boss and somehow bind your hands and keep you from enjoying a good life. The parameters of God are based on design. If God truly did, if he's real, that's the question you have to settle. If he's real and he really did create you and he really did design you and the world, doesn't it make sense that he would know how you function best? So if he gives a precept, it's because he loves you and he knows your best life is live this way, not this way. Come on. I mean, if he says, don't commit adultery, do you think it's because he wants to be the big, bad, cosmic boss or he actually cares about the lady that you're cheating on? You understand? I tell my little boy not to play in the middle of the street, not because I'm the father. I don't want him to get hit by a car. See, until you understand that's the God of Scripture, you'll look at stuff like this and you'll just laugh it off. Jesus said in John 8, 32, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Are we good? Did this give you a headache? Would you like to see me never do this again? Okay, some people are doing this. I took a shot. I took a shot. I wanted to see what would happen. But I will ask you to do this. I love you and I'm begging you. We're all sinners. We all fall short. My job is to encourage you to keep going. I know that. We're all sinners. But I'm begging you, make this a non-negotiable in your life. The more word you get in, the safer you're going to be. Get into a rooted group if you haven't signed up and go back and Remember that to which you're called. And remember, this is a living, active God who wants relationship. Read and study the Word of God. Get your Bible out and read it again. See what the Spirit of God will say to you. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And one last thing, because I know there are going to be people listening to this down in Australia, New Zealand, and England, throughout Europe, and I want them to ask themselves a question. And you ought to ask it too. Ask yourself if your pastor centers on the word or does he center on himself? You got to ask that question. Does he spend more time on humor and entertainment rather than breaking down the word and its relevancy for your life? You can be an incredible entertainer and communicator and say nothing. There have been times when I've been to church when I was in seminary and I came out of there fired up, man, but then I tried to remember what we heard. <laughs> Spiritual pep rallies and emotional frenzies won't hold you over the long haul. So be careful who you're allowing to teach you. And finally, is he or she captivating or is the word captivating him? And I would pray, and I had a different kind of message. I loved this series, man. Think about where we've been. Think about it. Get out of Moab. We learned from Ruth. In Jonah, God spends more time dealing with the believer than the unbeliever. In Philippians, oh, oh, Philippians, right? And now 2 Timothy. Repent. Get back into the word so that you may be able to test what is acceptable, what is good, because the word of God is in you. And if you found yourself making excuses for why something you know down deep inside is not appropriate or right, and you've surrounded yourself with teachers who will tell you what you want to hear, repent, go back to the word and ask the spirit to guide you. Father, thank you for this series. I, uh, for God so loved, indeed, he loves us. And because he loves us, he has given us his revelation 
to inspire us, to encourage us, to reproof us, to rebuke us. I pray that in humility we would listen. We would never judge each other, but love each other, encourage each other when we're falling away, knowing that we all are culpable in the wrong place at the right time. At the wrong time, we're not sure how we'd respond, how would we react. We need to bear each other's burdens. So I pray this sermon would do just that, a way of encouragement to walk in the way of the word, for it is more certain than any emotion, than any experience we could ever have. In Christ's name, everybody said You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Vines. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.